Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdett, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, January 5th. Happy New Year, everyone. How's your inbox looking today after a two-week break? Mine is filled with healthcare outlooks for the year, and we're going to give you one more and the best one on today's episode of The Roundup, courtesy of our two industry experts, Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave, and hi, Julie. Happy New Year to you both. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? Well, despite my best intentions, I didn't do any writing or particularly deep thinking during the holidays. Dave, remember the phrase vegging out from the 1970s? I certainly do. (laughs) That's what we were doing. And I think both Terry and I really benefited from the mental break. So how am I doing now? I'm shaking off the cobwebs, getting into the flow of the new year, and also coming to terms with the fact it's time to take down the Christmas decorations. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we. I think we had this conversation last year, and you, you had yours a wreath up through February, didn't you? <laughs> it was cold. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> uh, we'll do better this year. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you? I am well. Work has definitely come crushing back this week, so I agree with that break, Dave. But I can say for the first time ever since moving to Seattle, I can say I'm pretty happy to not live in California with all the rain and destruction going on down there. And for anyone going to JP Morgan, bring your wellies. It's going to be a wet one. Yeah, that looked pretty wild. Yeah, good luck to everyone. Uh, Now, before we talk about healthcare in 2023, I wanted to ask you how you closed out your 2022. Specifically, I wanted to ask you whether you tried any new or unusual foods or drinks over the holidays and whether you like them or not. Dave, anything new or different on your plate this year? Well, wife Terry can make oysters disappear faster than Houdini. And I had convinced myself decades ago that I didn't like them and avoided them altogether. But against my better judgment, Terry persuaded me to give oysters a try. And lo and behold, I really like them. I even have a preference for East Coast over West Coast oysters. Go figure. Wow. What would you put Tabasco on them or what did, what did you do? Little lemon. Mm-hmm. Little lemon. Okay, great. Good for you. Julie, how about you? Did you try any uh, interesting or unusual foods over the past two weeks? You know, I think probably the most unusual thing I tried, not to talk about drinking on the show, is an ube colada. And I don't even like pina coladas. It's not my thing. But throw a little ube in there, which is this Hawaiian purple yam thing. And oh, so good. So highly recommend. (laughs) All right. I'm coming to the party at your house next time. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're pretty good. Fantastic. It does sound good. You know, I don't like uh, olives stuffed with blue cheese and haven't had any in years. I'm a traditional uh, pimento guy. I decided to try them again after Santa left a uh, jar of them in my stocking. And you know what? They still taste like crap. 
Olives are great. Blue cheese is great. But together they can destroy a perfectly good vodka martini. So never again. And that has, uh, you like olives with blue cheese? I am the olive with blue cheese and vodka martini fan. So I don't know. All right, we'll have to. Uh, I don't know what's happening. Yeah, we'll have to be very clear <laughs> with the bartender when you and I sit down to to order That's one. That's right. Oh my gosh, look at us now. We're talking about drinking. Yeah. Oh, so terrible. Started us on the wrong path. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that maybe has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, unless you guys can find a tie-in between uh, olives drinking and healthcare. We'll see. 2023 is here, and we're starting another year in healthcare. Well, we were trying new or old foods over the holidays. Uh, CMS released its latest national health expenditure figures. CMS said national health care spending rose 2.7% in 2021 to $4.3 trillion, representing 18.3% of our GDP. That is my simple setup for an open-ended question. Uh, Dave, as we look out over the next 12 months in healthcare, what are the one or two biggest trends or stories that you think will bend those numbers one way or another? Wow. Uh, first, I have to take a moment for vodka martinis, uh, particularly dirty vodka martinis. You really got me thinking, guys. It's anyway, just but... a little after eight, Dave. We've got a few more hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Already looking forward to tonight. Uh, anyway, back to the question. Since 1976, Lake Superior State University in Michigan has issued a top 10 list of words that we should banish from our vocabulary for overuse, misuse, and or uselessness. Their number one pick on their banished words list for 2023 is the acronym GOAT, greatest of all time. It's in every other sentence mentioning the quarterback Tom Brady of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But right after GOAT at number two is, quote, inflection point. And here's what Lake Superior State has to say about inflection point. It is a mathematical term that entered everyday parlance and lost its original meaning. This year's version of, quote, pivot vanished in 2021. Chronic throat clearing from historians, journalists, scientists, or politicians, its ubiquity has driven me to an inflection point of throwing soft objects about whenever I hear it, <laughs> a quipster recounted. Inflection point has reached its saturation point and point of departure, proclaimed another. Pretentious way of saying turning point claimed a third. You know, hilarious. But with deference to Lake Superior State, I believe that U.S. healthcare is at an inflection point in 2023. The macro numbers you cited on GDP and healthcare spending, along with inflation, are the factors driving my belief that America's decade long era of overspending on healthcare is ending. As the Catskills resort owner Max Kellerman observes in the movie Dirty Dancing, it's all just slipping away. That's good for the American people, but bad for industry incumbents. So let me explain why I think 2023 will be an inflection point for U.S. healthcare. In doing so, I'm going to focus on economic indicators from 21 and 22. You mentioned that healthcare spending rose 2.7% in 2021 to $4.3 trillion, representing 18.3% of the U.S. economy as measured by GDP. Healthcare's percentage of GDP in 2021 was actually down 
from 19.7% of GDP in 2020. That's when the government pumped enormous amounts of stimulus funding into healthcare to combat COVID. Uh, overall, the economy shrank by 3.4% in 2020. There was bound to be some correction, and that occurred. The reason for healthcare's percentage drop in GDP in 2021 is that the overall economy grew at 5.7%, where healthcare only grew at 2.7%. We also have to take inflation into account. Since the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, Inflation has roughly been at 2%, and this was slightly below the overall growth in the economy. Times were good. When GDP outpaces inflation, the nation creates wealth. Healthcare historically has captured a disproportionate share of the nation's incremental wealth creation. That's how healthcare grew from 5% of the nation's economy in 1960 to almost 20% in 2020. But here's the rub. Inflation in 2021 was 7%. So even with 5% GDP growth, the nation as a whole lost purchasing power. In 2022, economists expect GDP growth to be just under 2%, so back to normal levels. Meanwhile, inflation remained very high at 7.1%. That mismatch translates into significant lost wealth and lost purchasing power. As we mentioned in our last podcast, Hospitals had a terrible year in 2022 with unprecedented operating losses. The macroeconomic trends involving this mismatch between GDP growth and inflation explain why society writ large hasn't been willing to provide more funding to healthcare despite its urgent pleas for more resources. Expect this economic pressure on the healthcare industry to actually intensify in 2023. That would be bad in and of itself if healthcare were doing what it's supposed to be doing, but it's not. Dave, you had a terrific column this week with the provocative title, If Health Were Wealth, We'd Be Flat Broke, where you chronicle America's dramatic underperformance in health status relative to other advanced economies. Everyone out there should read it, it's terrific. Bad macroeconomics and its historic lack of value creation are creating the conditions for a major, dare I say it, inflection point for healthcare incumbents in 2023. The industry is experiencing a reverse Robin Hood moment after stealing resources from the rest of American society for 60 plus years. American society now expects healthcare to repatriate some of that lost wealth to fund other urgent priorities. Broadly speaking, this is good news for the American people. As a nation, we need less health care and more health, but that isn't going to make it any easier for healthcare's industry incumbents to adjust to a new normal, a banished word from 2022. Dave, that is a great economics lesson and I think our first Dirty Dancing reference. <laughs> Nobody puts baby in a corner. There you go. Well done on both. Julie, any questions for Dave? So incumbents, they haven't been dealing with their fixed costs at all. And now inflation is making the staffing crisis, you know, outrageously worse. What's going to happen with staffing now in the next year and beyond as we think about the impact on costs? What I hope is going to happen is that 
healthcare providers figure out how to use technology in ways that actually reduce the burden on frontline employees so that we can get more bang for the buck and people can enjoy their day-to-day work life much more than they currently do. Uh, There's enormous opportunity for improvement through optimization of scheduling, through technologies that anticipate problems that improve decision-making that make frontline workers more productive. So I hope what happens, and it's January, so I'm having a positive outlook, is that all this economic pressure forces providers to really look deep inside and say, how do we do more with less and how do we do it better? And there's numerous examples and case studies of how to do that effectively. I guess the question is how many organizations actually have the wherewithal, particularly when they're fighting such fiscal problems, to actually make that kind of pivot. So anyway, that's my hope. Yeah, well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Thanks, Dave. Julie, same question. Tell us the one or two trends that will have the biggest impact on healthcare spending in 2023. Well, you know, one or two is tough for me, Dave, as you know, and because <laughs> that's how I describe my vodka martini. Yeah. <laughs> one or two is just, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> I need four olives in mine. So uh, you know, there you go. talk about excess. Three. I'm very superstitious. There you go. Please. So the reason this is tough for me is because so much of the innovation and market shifting that will really materially impact spending in the long run is not necessarily going to be evident in the next 12 months, which is really what your question is asking. And yet there are so many innovations making a dent. So before I kind of go down the road of my two, I, I wanted to raise two interesting factoids about firsts that are projected to happen in 2023. If you go to the CMS.gov website, they say that Medicare spending is projected to exceed $1 trillion for the first time in 2023. That's Medicare spending. Also in 2023, we could very well cross over to having the majority of the 60 plus million Medicare eligibles likely enrolled in private Medicare Advantage plan versus the program's traditional option. So these are two potentially major things that could make 2023 a year we talk about for years to come. So let's see what happens. Get excited. But back to your question, Berta, you know, on the increased spending side, we know that so many patients, so many people have skipped routine screening exams because they just didn't feel comfortable entering a doctor's office or a hospital or were discouraged from coming during COVID. Mammograms, colonoscopies, prostate screenings. We've talked about this on the show a few weeks ago. Now we're diagnosing increased numbers of advanced stage cancers and heart disease, diabetes, and you know other diseases that would have been more successfully treated earlier on. So the number of CT scans, MRI studies, biopsies, more aggressive medical care, surgeries, especially drugs, we're going to need a lot more of it. And of course, all these things will lead to higher costs. So that I think will in fact impact spending in this year in a material way. On the flip side, I'm pretty bullish about what's happening in the PBM space, both on the innovation side and in reform. And on the reform side, you know, with these current investigations underway, I hope to God the FTC really focuses on drug transparency and holds PBMs accountable for the massive unfair 
deceptive practices that are increasing consumer costs and limiting access to drugs. It would just be such a win. And on the innovation front, there's so many new market entrants, you know, on the PBM side that promise more transparent PBM services and data that are going to help employers and plans, you know, get a little bit more control. And on the consumer drug access side, an interesting fact on the PBM side, did you know that of the six platforms that process Medicare prescription claims in the country, there's only one platform that was written after the Medicare expansion Part D in 2006, which is almost 20 years ago? Doesn't seem so crazy when you think about a system written fresh from scratch. But at the end of the day, when you think about cloud computing and you think about what Medicare Part D has done to drugs and how they're paid for and reimbursed, like it's pretty significant, actually. So my fun fact of the day there. Lastly, I'll just say this uh, on the innovation of consumer access to drugs I mentioned, I think it goes hand in hand with the PBM innovation. Consumers are taking control of their drugs through GoodRx, who we know well, or Mark Cuban and many of his competitors. And what I love about the long-run potential of consumer virtual drug access is I believe it is the, Dave, tipping point, inflection point. We are pivoting towards the floodgates for virtual care because of drug access online. But that's a discussion for another time. All right. PBMs and Medicare advantages, kind of the uh, things to watch out for this year as big drivers, the one way or the other. That's great, Julie. Thank you. Dave, any questions for Julie? Julie, I'd like to ask you about the good news, bad news implications of the issue that you mentioned on screening. And obviously the bad news is that people that weren't getting screened adequately are going to now show up with fairly catastrophic or more catastrophic healthcare needs uh, requiring acute care interventions. Um, so not screening is a bad thing. On the flip side, our screening techniques and some of the advances in diagnostics are enabling professionals to diagnose conditions much earlier, prevent them, or at least manage them much more effectively, reduce the need for acute interventions. And how do you see these two trends playing off against one another, the lack of screening and increased need for acute interventions with the advances in screening that will lead to earlier diagnosis and even prevention and fewer acute interventions? How do you see that playing out over, I guess, 2023 and, and maybe beyond? Yeah, I guess my thinking on that is of raising this issue in particular is pretty simple because I was trying to focus on 2023 and near-term mm -hmm, yeah. spending impact. And I think we're in a bubble, right? And we, despite how good our techniques might be, disease has advanced. I mean, Kirstie Alley, God rest her soul, right? But I think we're also in this place where we need to get people back in for screenings to be able to use more advanced technology and take advantage of all the at-home, dare I go back to the poop in a bag, you know, <laughs> screening and and you can't seem to get away from it <laughs> i know i love it educate people about what can be done in the convenience of their home and or in a more convenient place than going into an acute care center right so i think we're in a little bit of a bubble over 23 and 24 where we're going to play catch up but the long run impact will not be devastating to your point Got it. Thanks, Julie. I don't have any predictions for this year, but I will say that our 
monthly premiums for family coverage didn't go up this year for the exact same uh, benefits. So thank God for small miracles. Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this past week. Julie, what news jumped out at you uh, this first week of 2023? Well, there's nothing better than when you can connect your 2022 observations in December to your 2023 predictions. But <laughs> Continuity, baby. That's great. Oh, so good. This week, I'm sure you saw two actions that could significantly expand access to abortion through medication. For the first time, retail pharmacies from your corner drugstore to CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, are going to be allowed to offer abortion pills that were previously dispensed only by a few mail order pharmacies or, you know, specially certified doctors. So under these new FDA rules, patients will just need a prescription and can go to the drugstore, which is amazing. Second, and potentially more important, the Justice Department issued an opinion that the USPS can deliver abortion pills to people in any state, even those that have banned or sharply restricted the procedure. And this is big. They're both an inflection point, a tipping point, a pivot towards goodness. I'm having fun with this, Dave. For women to move from drug access to women actually really seeking care for themselves through these virtual companies who are helping them through this situation. So I believe that we are seeing women driving virtual care happening. No, those are both great developments. Thanks, Julie. Dave, we're a week into the new year. I know something caught your attention. What was it? Well, first, Julie, I think those are are great observations. And let the far right try to put that abortion pill genie back in the bottle. I just don't think it's going to be possible. So that is goodness personified. My noteworthy event is more personal than industry. I learned last week that healthcare icon Patricia Cahill died in October 2021. For those of you who don't recognize the name, Pat was the first CEO of the massive Catholic healthcare system, Catholic Health Initiatives, or CHI. She was a member of the Modern Healthcare Hall of Fame and among the most effective and engaging healthcare leaders I've ever known. She always called me Boopsie, which <laughs> tells you something about her personality. But how I found out about Pat's death is interesting. I sent her a note a couple months ago and never received a response, which is is highly unusual. And we also didn't receive a holiday card from her this year. Uh, she had beautiful cursive handwriting. And that those two events caused me to, to Google. And that's when I discovered an obituary in the Cape Cod Times. But here's what I'm wrestling with. So in addition to coming to terms with Pat's death, I'm trying to understand the industry's lack of attention to her significant contributions. Common Spirit, the successor organization to CHI, doesn't have any mention of her on their website when you search for her name. So in my small way, I'd, I'd like to pay tribute to Pat uh, and all her accomplishments, even as I wonder why she isn't receiving anywhere near the recognition due her. So in the spirit of today's uh, podcast, let's all raise our virtual vodka martini glasses and toast Pat Cahill, uh, just a remarkable healthcare personality and, and uh, leader. That's a nice tribute, Dave. Thanks. Uh, as a reporter, she was always a great interview and never avoided the tough questions. So uh, I really appreciated that as well. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Julie. And thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. 
Infora connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.